We are currently in our series in the book of Acts. It's called The House That Jesus Builds. And every week we try to, every pastor is always like, I got to come up with a really great name for this sermon. The sermon's got to have a great name. And we spend way more time than we should on that when we just give it, here's the reference and be done with it. But as I was thinking about where we are in this passage, and next week is kind of the big passage that really kind of marks the church really exploding and taking off. There's this moment that takes place, and so I was praying over what do we call this sermon, and then my wife's like, oh, I found this really cool word that would really work, and so you just, if you look at it on the title, it's just this one little word that you're like, I don't know what that word means. I may not even know how to pronounce that word. I had to try a couple times to get it right, but it's liminal, and what that means is this. It's relating to a transitional or initial stage or a process, and so what we see in this church is this. This is the beginning transformation stage that's going to be taking place where the church is going to be born, and, and this is what's happening. They're in this liminal stage of the church's life and beginning, and I just, I was thinking through that, and I was praying over it. I'm like, man, this makes a lot of sense of where we're going and what we're doing. Now, if you ask the staff, they'll probably tell you that Simon listens to music too loud in his office. I have a couple of speakers, I have a subwoofer, there's always music going on, and I was like, I open the door, I'm like, wow, that's really loud, I should probably turn that down. But I love music, and I love listening to music as I study, as I prepare, as I read. And this week, uh, I was listening to Tom Petty, and a big fan of Tom Petty. I didn't like Tom Petty for a long time, and then I realized how amazing he was, I'm like, I was just immature and dumb. And so, I was listening to him, and there was a song that came on. I'm like, this is really encapsulating what we're talking about today. And the song is, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. And I watched an interview with Tom Petty talking about this song when he wrote it. He said, actually, it took a long time to write, write, and it was a, a number of years that I put it together. And it's really, the song is about anticipation and hope of waiting on a promise. So that's what this song is about. And that's where we are, right? Jesus had told the disciples, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you power. I've given you the mission plan of what you're going to do. And now I want you to wait. And the waiting is the hardest part because there's this anticipation. Like, I don't know what's going to look like. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. And maybe you've been in a season of waiting. I remember when I was waiting to marry my wife. It, I waited way longer than I wanted to. <laughs> It took a long time, but it was that anticipation and the hope of being married to my wife that I was so excited about. Now, the disciples have been told, this is what's going to happen. This is the plan, and, and verse 8 is really this, this verse we've been, like, it's not a coincidence that it's up here during the time we're in Acts, like, oh, how'd that happen? We planned it, because we wanted you to understand that if you take anything away from the book of Acts over the next year and a half as we've been going, we're going to go through it. This is the mission statement of the book of Acts. It, it encapsulates everything that's going on in this one statement. And then as we go to the book of Acts, it just zooms into the different parts of what's happening. And so they wait. And they, they're trying to figure out what's going to happen, what's going to be going on. And Jesus goes to the right hand of God. He ascends. And this is what the disciples end up doing. And I, and I want to, there's a couple of landing points today. And I'm going to press a little bit today. But there might be some of you that are in a difficult time right now. And there's waiting. You're waiting for news. You're waiting for results. You're waiting for an event. You're waiting for a job. You're waiting for something in life. 
And what I want to tell you is that you don't have to be just sitting there doing nothing, that you can actually be doing something during the waiting, and actually God is calling us to, and we look at what's going on in the book of Acts with the disciples and those around, they actually give us some things that we can see that are taking place during this season of waiting. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Acts chapter 1. We are going to be in verses 12 through 26. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you want to follow along because you're not sure to get to where we're going, it'll be on the screen. I am going to cover a lot of information. Just, I am not going to hit it all. There's too much in, in these 14 verses to get to. I'm going to try to just kind of zoom in and zoom out a little bit, but I'm going to land in a specific area ultimately that I want us to go, this is how we can apply this to our life. This is what God is doing and what he's saying to me. So if I don't get to where you're like, but you didn't talk about, you're right, I didn't. But you've got life groups. If you're not in life groups, sign up for a life group and you can talk about those things in your life group. That's what I want you to do. So, Starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the, in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out and became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own, in their, in their own language, Ekadama, which is field of blood for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men became with us a witness to the resurrection, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barabbas and also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know their hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen and take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for your word. It can seem like at times, what can we learn from a passage that just seems like it's kind of going through the motions and just kind of catching us up? But you have a word for us today. You have something you want to show us, something you want to teach us, an area where you want to press into our lives. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move before the people that are here this morning and that you would stir in them a passion and desire to know you more, to love you. That they, as they would look at what you've called us to do, that they would be about what these men and women were about before you exploded the world with the gospel and how you change lives and change history in the course of man. Holy Spirit, if, if there are things that I need to say, let me say them. If there are things I don't need to say, please don't let me say them. Lord, I want to be a vessel used by you 
Please let me get out of the way so you can do what you do best, which is touch the hearts of men and women and bring people back to you and to each other. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So I'm going to cover a lot of passages today. And here's what I don't want us to try to do. Try to look them all up. I'm going to rattle them off. And they're going to be on the screen. They're also going to be in the app with all the notes. And so you can go and get those later. The reason why I'm giving this scripture is to add weight to what I'm saying. I want you to understand that these verses are here. But if I was to go through all of them, we'd never get done today. And the second service would come in and we'd still be in the middle of the service. We don't want that to happen. So just know that they're there. You have access to them. And I would really encourage you to read those throughout the week as you move into stuff. So... What I have found is I have been looking at this and what the men and women were doing before the Holy Spirit came. I, I, I kind of identified five things, five observations that stuck out to me as I went through this passage. Now, the first one is this, obedience. It seems very basic, but they were obedient. They could have done a lot of things, but at the core of obedience is acknowledging authority. At the core of obedience is acknowledging authority. And they have called Jesus Christ their Lord, their Savior, their King. And so they've given him a title. And now their lives are then reflecting that. It's interesting. Jesus calls us to do something and he expects us to do it. He told the disciples, hey, go and wait. And they did. They could have done a lot of things. They could have been like, I got to go home. I got to go see my family. I got to go take care of these things. I got to make sure that, you know, whatever at the house is being taken care of. They could have been like, I need to go back to work. Work's real busy. I got stuff to do. As a matter of fact, that's what a lot of them did right after Jesus was crucified, right? Where do you find Simon Peter? Fishing. He's a fisherman. He went back to work. So they could have done that. As a matter of fact, my, my wife made me watch this horrible movie yesterday, and I was like, what are we watching? It's called Night and Day with the uh, amazing actor Tom Cruise. And so we watched this movie, and it was this Cameron Diaz was the main interest. And it was just interesting because Tom Cruise is this super assassin, amazing guy who can do anything. And he's like, hey, do this and do that. And if you do these things, everything will be great. And every time Cameron Diaz doesn't listen to Tom, everything gets horrible. All she had to do is listen to the expert, and it would have been fine. But that doesn't make good TV. We need to blow things up. And, you know, there was a whole, it was the worst movie ever. But enjoy. So what God is calling us to do is to be obedient. See, God is always calling his people to obey him, to follow him. Why? Because it shows that we trust him above ourselves. It's important that we need to trust God more than we trust ourselves. In Deuteronomy 5.33, James 1.22, John 14.23, speak to the idea of obedience and following a God who loves us and cares for us. I have a good friend, and uh, when I was going through the process of, you know, hearing God say, hey, um, your time in Seattle is coming to an end, and we would talk about, what does that mean? What do I do? How, where do I go? What, do, what does that look like? And he would always say the same thing. What's the last thing that God called you to do? And he's all, I'm like, this. He's like, then do that. And when he wants you to do something else, he'll reveal to you what he wants you to do after that. If you're, if you're in doubt of what you should be doing in life right now, ask yourself, what is the last thing that God called me to do? And then do that. It's about being obedient. After Jesus ascends, they return to Jerusalem, and it says that it was a Sabbath journey away. That's a weird way to say 
they didn't walk very far. That's really what it is. And, and really what's going on is the Sabbath. Uh, the Jews didn't want to break any of the Sabbaths, the day of rest. And so they made up all these rules and regulations of what you could do and how you could cook and where you couldn't go and how far is walk, if walking was work, how far is not walking work. And so they had all these rules. All it means, it was about just under half a mile. So it was about half a mile away, and they ended up walking back to the upper room. Now, some would say the upper room was the upper room where Jesus did the Last Supper. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It'd make for a way better story, but it doesn't actually tell us. So I can't embellish that as a pastor normally would. But here's what ended up happening. My second point is this. They were in fellowship. They were in fellowship. We are not meant to do life alone. We're just not. So we're made in the image of God, and, and you'll start to notice a pattern. I always go back to Genesis. Genesis, the first three chapters, I'm constantly in that section because we can learn so much about what God has designed the world to be, how to interact with them, what it should look like before the fall. And in Genesis 1.26, it says this, the first part, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why is that important? Was God lonely? He's like, I'm so bored being amazing. I need other little people around who aren't amazing to be around me. No. Was he by himself? No. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he was in perfect, harmonious community within himself. He wasn't lonely. That's not why he did that, but then he makes us. So what we find is if we're made in the image and the likeness of God and being in community is a part of the nature of who God is, then it makes sense that we are designed, it's written on our hearts, in our DNA, that we would be communal beings. See, that's what fellowship is. It's about being in community. God wants us in community. Remember, Jesus just spent the last three years of his life Every day with these guys, he was continually in community. He was never not with them. I mean, there was times he would go off and he'd pray, but he'd come right back. So they would understand this concept of being together, being with each other, doing life together. You know why we have all these stories about the disciples saying really dumb things? Because they were constantly around each other. And when you're around people, you talk. And you start talking the way you would normally talk. You start talking with, out of the real person of who you are, which is so good for us because now we're like, oh, me too. I think that way. And I say those things and God's like, let me show you what God's word says. Let me correct that. Let me lovingly show you truth in those moments. And so then what we see here is that we have these guys that are all together. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. But there's one guy missing. Who's missing? Judas of Iscariot. You got to be like, if you were the other Judas, you're like, why is that guy got to be the guy? Everyone thinks I'm the betrayer. This is the worst. I'd be so bummed out. Like, just ruin my name. But God's people are all together doing life together. You, you know what? I, 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 I'm going to... Go back to Genesis. You know what I love about the Garden of Eden? God's making everything. And he's like, and he made this, and it was good, and he made this, and it was good, and he made this, it was good, and he made this, it was good. And then all of a sudden, there's this statement where something wasn't good. Anyone know what it is? It's not good that Adam would be alone. Here's an even bigger question. Was Adam alone? 
God was there. So like, what do you mean alone if you're with God? Like, doesn't that tell you something? Like when people say things like, all I need is God, I don't need anybody else. Well, that's bad theology. That's wrong, actually. Because God then created woman for man, that there would be someone like him, that they would have. You are like me, I am like you. We are in communion together. And so God's like, you need me and you need others. Isn't that great? It's not just like, well, I do my own thing and forget everybody else. That's, not, that's never been a part of the plan. Even No sin. Something's not right. That Adam's alone. He creates community for Adam. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. See, we see as we move forward as the church, as God's people, we are a group of people doing life together, pointing each other to Jesus and the gospel in every area of our life and then taking that message to those who don't know it. That's what we're doing. That's what the church does. The church has always been a body of people. For 300 years, there was no building. I mean, they met at homes and and outdoor areas and things like that, but there wasn't a church building. That didn't exist. Yet they thrived and they grew, and it was amazing how fast they grew. I, uh, I've done a lot of youth work over the years. I love students. I've been, I've been working with students for forever, um, maybe because we have the same you know, maturity level and mentality. I don't know why, but I really enjoy students. They ask great, honest questions. They're not, a, they're not ashamed of who they are. They just kind of just speak their mind. And as I've worked with youth, I, I would watch kids go away to college over the years. And I kind of have a thing that I always say to youth students, to students and youth that are going away to college. Before you go, find a church. And before you go and say, that's the church I'm going to, make sure that church is not crazy. Because the more, <laughs> the closer you get to colleges, the crazier the churches get. That's just a fact. <laughs> and we just came from Seattle, and there's a lot of crazy churches out there. And they're not preaching God's word, and they're compromising that. So we say, find a good Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church and get plugged in before you get there. And they go, well, why? I'll, I'll figure it out as I go. I said, no, you won't. I've watched it too many times that students go away, they go to college, and like, oh, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. And then they get wrapped up, they make some friends, those friends do different things, they want to be a part of those groups, and they start compromising these beliefs over time, and and then all of a sudden they end up in a place like, I don't even know how I got here. I'm like, I do. You're outside of fellowship. And it reminds me of barbecuing. I love to barbecue. And in the old days, we didn't have all these fancy things. You had Kingford briquettes. Kingsford briquettes, and you had a big dome, and you dumped them in there, and you smothered it with lighter fluid, and you lit, that was the best part of the night, lighting that thing up when the, the ball of flame came out. And so that, those briquettes, you make them into a pyramid, because we all know the pyramid is the proper way to stack the briquettes. And you stack them up, and they get going, and after they get going after a while, they, you can see that they are red hot, and they stay in there, and they, they create this heat, and that heat, I mean, we're talking five, six, 700, 800 degrees if you're crazy, and you can really get that thing. You can searing meat, you're cooking food, and you can do that. Now, if you take one of those briquettes, with the tongs, by the way, with tongs, and you move it off to the side, even in the same bowl, that thing will start to cool down immediately. And it's amazing how, how fast those cool off. That's just like the Christian. You're like that briquette. You're meant to be with other briquettes because when you're together, you can continue to hold that heat and radiate that heat. In one accord, you can have one like mind that we are creating heat, we are on fire, we are passionate. But you remove the Christian from the briquette coal, 
and they're going to cool off and they're not gonna have that passion. They're not gonna have that desire. They're not gonna have that joy. They're not gonna have that love. They're not gonna have others speaking into their life, talking the crazy at them, praying for them, seeing how God is working, bringing scripture to their lives. But you know what I love about this analogy? If I take that same briquette, pick it up, hold it in my hand, it's cold, and I stick it back in that fire, what happens? It heats back up. We are not meant to do life alone. We are not meant to be away from the fellowship and the brotherhood of, uh, and sisterhood of Christians. We are not meant to. They are like-minded. It says so in verse 14. It says, all these with one accord. What were they saying? That they are singularly focused on one mission and one idea. They weren't going in a bunch of different directions. They were unanimous in what they wanted, and that was to be waiting for God to give them the Holy Spirit to put them on mission. That's what they were. And so then what we find is they were doing something. What were they doing? What was happening? That brings me to my third point, prayer. And this really is just, I'm a spoiler alert, this is really the focus of today. This is really what I want us to understand of how important this is. They weren't just hanging out. They weren't just twiddling their thumbs. They knew that they needed to be ready for the seemingly impossible task that was set before them by the Savior. And they knew they needed the power of the Holy Spirit because without the power of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't do it. And why did they believe that? Because Jesus told them that. So what do you do when you can't do something? What do you do when you aren't capable of fixing, solving, taking care of a problem? You reach out to the one who can. As Christians, that means we pray. We call out to the one who can do something. Prayer, it's the, the act of prayer is a position of humility. It's saying, God, you can, and I can't. That's what we're saying. So when we ask, when we're asking God for something, we're acknowledging that we don't have the ability to do it. You're like, well, prayer is more than asking, Simon. You're right. When we praise and worship God and we, we lift his attributes up, we are putting him in the proper position, which is above us, and we're below that. See, it's, a, it's an act of humility, knowing who we are in the universe, knowing that God is great and all-powerful, and we are not. It's acknowledging that we are not in control. And these men and these women were praying for help and for courage and for boldness and that God would save men and women who didn't know him yet and they're praying for protection knowing that it's probably going to be dangerous it's probably going to be hard they just killed our savior he came back but I mean what are they going to do to us? and again this behavior was modeled by Christ in their ministry before any major event before any time that God would do something Jesus would do something big we find that he finds himself in prayer all the time um, Luke 6, uh, 12, before he picked the 12 disciples, he was in prayer. By the way, you know, he's praying and he was praying for Judas. Isn't that crazy? Like he knew and then picked him. Insane. Mark 6, 46, before he multiplies the loaves and the fish, what's he do? Goes to God in prayer. Luke 9, 26, before the transfiguration, he prays. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. Before the crucifixion, Jesus is in prayer. And it's so important that it's over and over and over again in all the gospels that's laid out that he was in prayer so desperate for so long that he was bleeding 
uh, from his sweat, from his, like sweating blood. That's, that's how much he was praying. That's, he was asking for God to give him the power to do the task that he'd been called to do. And then we have our largest section in John 17, the high priestly prayer, before he goes, before he becomes a sacrifice. And not only is he praying for him and the power to do it, who's else is he praying for? Us. Like, you, you're about to go die and you're praying for us, you and me. That's crazy. Keep in mind the, the disciples and the others around them. Do you know how long this, so we know how long they were doing what they were doing. Okay, so Passover is when Jesus was, was, was crucified and killed. That's when that all took place. And so then we know that he came back and Jesus was amongst his believers for remember how many days we talked about it? 40, okay? We know that the festival of Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So how many days were they in prayer? This is like easy math. Like we're just like, I, I'm going to tee it up every time. So we know about 10 days that they were in prayer, praying for this to happen. So we would see that they would go and they would worship in the temple and they would hear God's word and they'd hear scripture and then they'd come back and they'd pray and they'd pray and they'd pray and then people would be coming and they'd be seeking God. 10 days. I'm trying to think if I've done anything for 10 days. Like, but this is what they realized. It was so crazy. And, I, and I, so here's what's happening. It was a time of preparation and God was preparing their hearts, getting them focused, unified in everything that they were doing. And here's how God is working behind the scenes. As Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost is getting closer, you know what God's doing? He's filling the city with people. I love that. He's like, and I'm just going to bring all these people from all over and they're going to come and they're going to worship this, this God that they don't even really understand what's happening. So he's filling the city and they're praying for men and women. They're praying for power. They're praying for, you know, the, okay, got Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They're like, I don't know what that looks like because they're probably praying in different ways in different cities. They might be praying for houses and blocks and different people that they know. John Bunny would say this in Pilgrim's Progress. Prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. I love that. And, and something to be really aware of, prayer has always been key to the early church. Um, I started writing down references to prayer in Acts, and I stopped halfway. I'm like, there's a law, and my hand hurts. Acts 2. Acts 4, Acts 3, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 13, Acts 12, Acts 16. Like, they're just all there. They're, they're going to be in there. You can you look those up. You can read about how they were constantly in prayer all the time to do what God had called them to do. You see, I, I share these passages because I want you to understand, like, they didn't do it on their own. They weren't these great, amazing individuals. They were people like you, people like me, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and on their knees in prayers that God would work. That's what was going on. The, the church, if it wants to grow, must be on its knees. And, and I, I'm gonna say a couple of things. And I've been at a lot of churches and I've seen a lot of churches. Like last week um, when we prayed for the missionaries in Haiti and please keep praying because there's a lot happening there. Um, and you guys all just started praying. I just sat in the back and I just listened. And I was so encouraged about hearing your prayers. I didn't even pray. I'm like, I forgot to pray. But I just, I was like, this is not normal. Most churches in America don't do this. And I was so encouraged. I'm like, and we're praying. We're, we're asking God to do something. A.W. Tozer would say, to desire revival 
And at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. If we we want to see God move in this area, if we want to see God move among your neighbors, if we want to see God move in this city, are we in prayer? Are we on our knees asking God to intervene, to do the impossible? Because if not, we're kind of saying, look how great we are. We can do it. We got this, God. We'll let you know when we need you. We'd never say that, would we? But our actions reflect that when we're not in prayer. The fourth thing that I noticed was they were in Scripture. They were using God's Word to guide them and to direct them. So if prayer is us talking to God, by the way, the only way that we communicate with God is through prayer, just so you're aware of that. We got one option. Then reading scripture is the primary way that God will communicate to us. Now, he can communicate in different ways, okay? Just want to throw that out there. That happens. But primarily, the way that God communicates to his people is through scripture. It would be like going to your uh, retirement person and saying, I got got all these questions like, where should I put my money and how should I do this and where should I invest and uh, when should I pull it out and what are the taxes going to look like? And you ask all these questions, you're like, all right, see ya. And, And you just walk away. You don't get the answers. How are you gonna do what needs to be done if you don't have the answers? And this is kind of what we do in prayer, isn't it? We say a bunch of stuff to God We make a bunch of requests. We ask him to reveal stuff to us and then we don't go back to his word and read what he wants to tell us. See, he has the answers here for you. He wants to communicate with you. He wants wants to talk to you so badly, he put it all down so we wouldn't miss it. And that he put it down in such a way that we wouldn't mess it up and change it. Like he wants us to go to his word and that's exactly what Peter's going to do. He's gonna use his word to guide them and direct them as they're in this waiting period of what they should do. And he says he stood up and all of a sudden he's like, and there's, oh, by the way, there's like 120 people there. That's a big upper room. I mean, that's kind of like a little bit more than we have here. And they are praying and they're in fellowship and they're being obedient and he said that everything that God said must be fulfilled. Well, what's, what's Peter saying? That all these prophecies, all these things that have been written in the Old Testament will all come to be. Everything written about the Savior has come to be. Everything that was laid out by the prophets of old has told us that these things would happen, that our sins had to be atoned for, that there had to be a sacrifice, that he gave us a sacrificial system to understand that sins have to be dealt with, that there must be blood for sin. And that this man would come, he would come from this area, from this line, from this person, by this way of birth. And Jesus just ticks them all off on the line. And then he came and he lived the perfect life that we could not live. He went to the cross. He died for our transgressions. And he gives that life to anyone who would call on his name. This is the gospel. This is the message of truth. And I just, God's been so gracious. In the last week, I've been having the opportunity over and over again to keep sharing the gospel with people who don't know it. I'm just so, it's like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm just waiting and praying for these people to come to know Jesus. But that's the gospel. That's the truth of of what's going on. And so then Peter says all this, and he says, hey, um, we got a problem. Judas is gone, and 
there's a lot here. I'm going to kind of just rocket ship through some of this stuff. There's two things that happen. Um, they says, oh, you know, this is how Judas died. And he's like, he fell down and his guts burst all over the place. But in Matthew 27, 5, what's it say? He hung himself. You're like, ah, contradiction, Bible wrong. No. It's not a contradiction, it's a compliment. And sometimes, you know, when you tell a story and you forget a detail and then you bring it, you tell the story again and you add that detail, it's not that you were wrong, right? It, you just, oh, this other thing, this thing happened. And so that's what's happening. So there's a couple of things that could be said of what was going on and what happened in that. And there's like kind of three big ones. One is that, hey, he went and he was on a cliff and he hung himself and the rope or the branch broke and he fell down the cliff and he landed on some rocks and bleh, everything. It was that. Or he hung himself and he was there for a couple of days. And you know what happens after a couple of days when you're dead, bad things happen. And then the rope broke and then he fell and he burst open. But there's one that I studied this week that I thought was actually really interesting. So he hangs himself during the time of Passover. And Passover is the time where they're having the sins of the city forgiven, right? And so there has to be all these rules and regulations about cleanliness and what you can and can't do. And having a dead body in the city is going to make that city unclean. So they have to get rid of all the dead bodies in the city and have them outside of the city if they're going to have the sins forgiven. So it could have been that after they hung himself, like he, you know, they had to cut him down. Like, well, we got to get rid of this dead body. So they threw him over one of the walls in that time and haste. And when he fell, he burst open. It's not that we don't have logical reasons for what could have happened within this. And that's what I want you to understand. It's not in contradiction to itself. But the reality is, is that there are things that we are seeing like, oh, that makes sense as to how that could happen. The other thing, you're like, well, Judas couldn't have bought a field because he was dead. <laughs> he took his money back. He, he had this moment where he realized what he did, um, and he went and took the piece. like, I don't, want, I don't want this money. Well, here's the funny part. The, the priest, they couldn't take blood money. Apparently, they can give it out. The hypocrisy is amazing at the level that it hits. But they couldn't accept it. So like, well, what do we do with this? Buy this field in his name with his money and it won't be us and that'll be how it's done. Like, do you see? Like, there's reasons for what this looks like. So when people start to say that it's contradictory, that's not what's going on. It's, it's interesting because Judas was there. He saw everything. This is why Peter brings up what he brings up. He, he saw Jesus teach. He heard Jesus teach. He watched Jesus walk on water. He watched Jesus raise people from the dead. He was given power to go and do miracles and cast out demons at one point. Yet, he turned his back on the Savior and rejected him. You are not my Lord. You are not my Savior. My God is money. My God is power. My God is accolade. My whatever. And then Peter then points out in Psalm 109, uh, 8 and Psalm 69, 25, this, this weird section that we get like, may his camp become desolate and may there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So that's two Psalms kind of like jammed together. And what's going on is Peter is using scripture to lead and direct. And this idea is that Psalm 69 is a lament about a faithful Israelite suffering the attacks of an accursed chief leader, someone in position of power or authority. And the psalm says that he said, take away his camp and may it go away, may it not be there. But then he connects that 
to 109, where it says, and let another take his office. And so he's looking at scripture, he says, man, we gotta do something here. Like, God's telling us, like, and, and I, what I love is this. David's writing this psalm, and it's a great psalm. I wanted to read it all, but again, we don't have time to go through all of it. And it, you can just see the parallels of David talking about what's going on in his life and what Jesus went through. And we're not even realizing he's writing about Jesus and he's writing about Judas and what's going to be happening. There's a parallel of what's happening. And yet that applies and Peter sees and goes, we need to do something. That brings me to my fifth and final point. Leadership. They're going to establish leaders to do the work that Jesus is about to start. And I love what he does. Is Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to talk about all that I did. Right? That's, that's, so he, he's using Jesus' words to guide and direct in how they're going to choose these guys. And it says this in verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Peter's like, we got to be a witness. We need a guy that was there from the beginning and a guy that was there at the end. And they didn't just go, oh, we need some randos. Who, who was around? No, they thought about it. They looked around and they said, we need faithful, godly men that could move into this position. And we want, you know, Jesus picked us and we want Jesus to pick this guy as well. And something to note, like, you go, oh, Justice and uh, Matthias, like, oh, so that meant something that Matthias was great and Justice was bad. No, that's something that we've created in our culture, like it's either one or the other. Both these guys were super godly men who loved Jesus. Either of them would have been a fantastic choice. And, and as I have gone through ministry, and as I look at young men and, and women to serve in the church and do things, I'm always looking for something. Who's serving? Who's faithful? Who's around? Who's not complaining? Who's not trying to promote themselves? And as you start to find those individuals, you find people that have the heart of serving because they realize the gospel, who the church is, what we've been called to do, how we're to be like Christ in all ways. That's who I look for. The, the worst is the guy who's like, oh, I, I'm new here. I, I should be an elder. Oh, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> like, we want to watch what you do. And these guys, three years, they had been around. They were faithful. Most likely, they were a part of the 72 that Jesus sent out to go out and to do miracles and to, and to take that message forward. I think Peter's thinking, I got to, we need help. Like, we're going to need help to do this. And so they cast lots. And you're like, oh, this is where it gets goofy, Simon. They grab some rocks, write a name, and throw it. They're like, the Lord spoke. Like, is this like the bones and all those weird, like, you know, zombie movies where they're reading the bones? So this is, a, this is a common practice in the Old Testament. We see that lots was a common practice. It was a way of letting God choose. So it wasn't a matter of chance. They weren't going, well, it's, we don't know what to do. It's just random chance. That's not what they were doing. But what it was is an opportunity for God to make known his will. If God is sovereign, if God is control of all things, we trust and believe that God is going to do that. Now, so this is really important. This is the last time in Scripture that we see written down the casting of lots. Now, they may have, but there's, we don't find it anywhere else in Scripture moving forward. Now, I have my ideas to why, and I'm going to share it now. 
I believe it's because as they were casting lots, they were really saying, Lord, direct us, guide us, tell us what you want us to do. Then he pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. We don't need to go to rocks and sticks to do that. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And so now we go, Lord, guide me. Show me what you want me to do. Speak to me the truth of the decisions that you want me to make. See, we have God, his presence with us all the time. We can seek God out all the time. So we see the lot falls on Matthias. He's numbered among the 11. And that's the end of our passage. Like, what do I do with that? There's a lot going on, and I'm going to try to land the plane in a relatively timely manner. Waiting is a time of preparation in your life. Every time I've had to wait, every time I've had to endure long amounts of time with something that I desired deeply and wanted to do, it was a time where God was shaping me and molding me into the man he wanted me to be. He was allowing me to lay down things that I needed to lay down, to work through stuff in my heart, to watch him work, and to see his faithfulness through that process. And it may be that you are in that time right now. You, you need to be around other people. You need to wait on God. You need to be obedient. You need to be in fellowship. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in scripture. Do not waste an opportunity for God to shape and mold your heart in the waiting. Do not waste it. They're such precious moments and they are difficult and they are hard and God is saying, press into it and I will show you my presence through that entire process if you trust me. I was thinking about what this means for our church. My younger brother was a track guy, a lot of track. And he, he did the mile, that was his race. And so he didn't do it on his own. He was one of those guys like, we're sprinters. We can't do that mile on our own. So they had four guys and they would do the lap and then they'd hand the baton off and they'd hand the baton off. And so it's kind of like those hot wheel tracks where they have the little thing, like it starts to lose steam and it's got the little wheels and and it shoots it off. That's kind of what it's like when you're doing that. And so what's happening is you have these people with batons and they're running and they're about to run out of steam. They've used all their energy and they hand it off to the next guy and the next guy just takes off like a bullet. This is beautiful, like, if it's, and if it's done right, there's no loss of speed the entire time except for it moves forward. And as I was thinking about our church, I was thinking about where we are, I think of this, a baton. I think about all the different people that have been running this race. Vernon Olson was running the race. He had the baton. He was running. And he saw Ivan Bell. He was like, Ivan, you're up. And he ran. And then Ivan, he saw Larry up front. He saw Larry Campbell, and he handed off to Larry. Larry, go, go, go. And then, he, and then, then Larry saw Kevin. He's like, Kevin, you're up. You got this. And then Kevin saw Chris, Chris Bennett, and he handed it off to Chris Bennett. And then Chris Bennett's going. He's going hard. And then he looks where he's like, there's Mike Johnson. And he sees Mike Johnson, and he hands it off to Mike Johnson, and Mike Johnson runs hard. He runs long. And then Mike looks forward, and he's like, hey, there's Simon. And there's this moment where you're waiting for the baton. You're watching the race. You're seeing what's going on. Like, we got to do something. It's going to happen. We're going to get it. And I'm waiting for the baton to be handed off. And we're all waiting. And we are in this moment right now as a church where the baton is being passed. And we are moving in that next stage. And we are running hard. And we have to start asking in this moment of waiting for the baton to come to move forward on the mission that God's called us to in this area, what are we doing? What are we doing? 
Do we take seriously Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Acts 1, 8? Do we take it seriously, and, and are we being obedient to it? Or is this some weird hangout where we just like to hang around here and do stuff? Are we in fellowship with one another? Are we in one accord? Are we all like-minded in unison that we are about the mission of God, the Great Commission, taking that forward to the surrounding area? Are we in prayer asking God to work? Are we just kind of hoping it'll work out? I, um, I was thinking about it, and I'm like, gosh, man, we... When I ask people to pray, they're like, okay, I'll pray before dinner, I'll pray before bed, you know, maybe combined, that's like four minutes. And uh, how, how often are we in prayer like these men and women? 10 days, 10 days asking God to work and to move. When's the last time we spent an hour praying? And maybe some of you do, it's, it's, it's not an accusation, I just have been around a lot of churches and I just know what I've seen. Maybe you're like, oh my gosh, an hour? I couldn't make it 10 minutes. It's like a muscle. You gotta work it out. You gotta grow it. And I would even say this. I don't, Bill does a great job of putting together all the stuff that we do in the groups. I know I'm going long, everyone. I'm, I, I apologize. I'm gonna ch- I wanna challenge you this week. I just wanna challenge you. What if this week you got together and you just prayed? And I'm not even talking about sharing prayer requests. I'm talking about like we're praying for the mission of God. We're praying for the city. We're praying for Harvest Fest. We're praying for the leaders. We're praying for new people. We're praying for our neighbors, for our kids' friends. What if we just started praying like that? What if we took the entire time and prayed through that? I'm like, well, we might do that. And you're like, well, our group is not going to do that. Okay, maybe you just need to do it on your own this week. Maybe you need to go find a time where you get away and say, I am asking you, God, to do the impossible in my life. Are you seeking out God's scripture as you do that? Are you trying to understand what it means to have good doctrine and good theology of why we're even doing what we're doing? Are you seeing God, show me how to do this. Show me your message. Show me your truth. Show me how to take this to my friends and neighbors and coworkers. Those I don't like. And are we looking to develop future leaders? And I'll say this as I end out. If we don't look for new leaders, if we don't invest in the next generation, this church will die. Someone invested in your life and someone invested in the life of the person who invested in your life. Someone invested in my life and I want to invest in others' lives. We have to constantly be looking for the younger generation to keep building into and the hope would be is that I, I'm waiting, right? I'm running. I'm looking. Who's the guy? Who's the next guy that I get to hand this off to and however many years that is? Who's down the pike? I want to hand that off and I want to be like, I'm gassed, man. You go. You go and change this and I want to see them hand it off to the next guy and we'll all get a picture in a book at some point. Like, hey, that was the guy who was here. He did that thing. But at the end, it's not really about our picture in the book, is it? Who's it about? It's about Jesus so that he would be glorified and he would be lifted up and he would be made great. Let's pray. Jesus, I just, there's so much here. There's so much more we could talk about. There's so much more we could do with this. I, I thank you for this time. I know that as we run through this stuff, I just feel like I've, I didn't do 
justice to anything, but I know that you can work through me. I know you can work in the hearts of men and women, and I ask that you would do that. Lord, I ask that we would be a people that are seeking you out in all things, that as we run to you, that we would be obedient first and foremost. That as we're obedient, Lord, that we would, we would be in fellowship with other men and women, that we would be in prayer, that we would be going to scripture, and that we would be pouring to the next generation of believers to take this message forward. Be with us. Convict our hearts. Let us be a praying people in a position of humility. I pray these things in your glorious and amazing name.